chapter 2, I want to begin reading with verse 26. These things have I written unto you concerning them that seduce you. But the anointing which you have received of him abideth in you, and you need not that any man teach you. But as the same anointing teacheth you of all things, and is truth, and is no lie, and even as it hath taught you, you shall abide in him. And now, little children, abide in him, that when he shall appear ye, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. If ye know that he is righteous, ye know that everyone that doeth righteousness is born of him. Now, First John is one of those books that begins with John talking about love, life, light, and the blood. And he's telling us at the beginning of chapter 2 that we have an advocate, and Jesus is like our lawyer who pleads our case or advocates for us at the throne of God. He then proceeds to talk to the fathers and the sons and the children, explaining to them that the world that we live in Although it may be attractive, it is not something that should hold a fascination for us. In fact, he says, don't love the things that are in the world. And he tells us there are three things connected with the world, which is the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. As we then move further into the scriptures where we're going to be looking tonight, we learn that there are already antichrist spirits, in the world. And by Antichrist, we mean someone who attempts to take the place of Jesus or someone who stands in opposition to Jesus. And John said there are many Antichrists that are already in the world, and the false teachings and the deception that comes to Christians and the deception that enters into the church is what John is speaking of when he says in verse 22, who is a liar but he that denies that Jesus is the Christ? There are plenty of people who still believe Jesus was not the Christ. The Jewish people today don't believe Jesus was the Christ. Plenty of religious people don't believe that Jesus was the anointed one, and they definitely deny his sonship. And so in verse 23, John says, whoever denies the son doesn't have the father. Now, that may sound like a very difficult statement to embrace, but again, the Jewish group in whom we're grafted in as Christians, they deny the sonship of Jesus. Muslims deny the sonship of Jesus. Most religions on planet Earth deny any kind of sonship with respect to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And according to John, that is a spirit of antichrist that animates individuals and affects the way people think. And anyone who ever comes to you and denies that Jesus is the Christ or that he came in the flesh, that means bodily, or that he's the son, John says that particular teaching stems from the ministry of an antichrist spirit or an antichrist person. 
when I used to hear reporters on television, and some of these were on supposedly conservative networks, they'd make statements like this. But Jesus himself never said he was the son of God. His disciples said that afterwards. Whenever I would hear that, first thing come to my mind was Antichrist spirit. Here's a journalist that thinks he or she knows a little bit about God, but their lips are betraying who's speaking through them. Now, you can, you can always understand who is governing or guiding a person spiritually by their language. So here's what the Bible says. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth does what? Speaks. So whatever we put inside of us is eventually going to come from here. Now, you may be able to go a few days, a few weeks, maybe even a few months with what's in here being hidden from other people and you preventing it from coming from your lips, but eventually what's in here is coming out. And once it comes out, then those with their ears who are paying attention, they can see, or I should say they can hear where you are spiritually. They can understand where you are in relation to your maturity. Because if you're, if you're childish, you're going to sound like a child and you're going to be catty and you're going to be like this or you're going to be like that. But if there's a degree of maturity in your life, you're going to find that you'll, you'll be a mature person. Now, how, how do kids act? Well, kids are, you know, they're very emotional. So if, 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 if a toddler is, is playing with something, then the toddler doesn't want somebody else playing with it. And I've done this with little kids. I've seen them on the other side of the room messing with something, and then I go over in the corner and I'll grab a little teddy bear or a little toy and start playing with And then when the little kid sees me with it, they come running over there as quick as they can. They snatch it and say, mine? And adults can be the same way. Adults can be the same way. If, if they feel like you are infringing on their territory, they'll become territorial just like a little child. Now, an adult, an adult realizes, okay, if you want to play with that, go ahead. Eventually, you're going to put it down. You're not going to be here all night anyhow. Okay? So just, just go ahead and enjoy yourself. Well, these kinds of teachers were affecting the body of Christ, and this is why John says in verse 26 about people that, that seduce you. Now, we know the word seduction and seduce, they're connected. And there's a little verse in Galatians, I think chapter 3, that says, Oh, you foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you? I don't know if anybody in here has ever been seduced before, but, but I, I personally have been the victim of seduction. And, and and once you're charmed and, and and someone casts their spell on you and then you end up falling in love, it's hard to get out of that. It really is. It's hard to get out of that. But but imagine if if um if the seduction taking place involves false doctrine. Because false doctrine usually has enough of the element of truth in it to make it attractive to you. And depending on what the truth is and what the deception is, it might even appeal to you, not even not just emotionally, but even rationally. You, you, you take a man who, who, who 
thinks that it wouldn't be so bad to have more than one wife, you better believe that religions that teach polygamy will be important to them. They used to have a show that would come on when Tiff and I would travel, and we'd be in a hotel and we'd try to find a Christian channel or some kind of history channel or something to, to, to look at, and then you're flipping through all these channels, but they had this one show about these people. I guess they were from Utah or Arizona somewhere. It's called Big Love. and had this one man married to these different women, and they all seemed to be happy or whatever. But what would be attractive in something like that? I can tell you what's attractive for a guy. He can have as much flesh as he wants. But you'll notice that, that the religions that promote that kind of a thing, it's usually the guy who gets to have as many as he wants, but you don't find any religions where the lady gets to have as many hubbies as she wants. There's an attraction to it. There's a deception attached to it. And with that deception, there's the seduction. Because if you seduce a person, then you reel them in and you have them. Well, notice then that it says in verse 27, for us that are Christians, we have an anointing. Now, what is the anointing? Look back at verse 20. But ye have an unction from the Holy One, and ye know all things. An unction, same word as the anointing. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21, it says, Now he who establishes us and anoints us is God. The day you stepped out of sin and came into the kingdom of God, you were anointed by the Holy Spirit. You had to be. You had to be anointed by God because your body is the temple. And you know that when the tabernacle was erected in the book of Moses, that one of the last things they did when they finally got it up and the glory of God was about to descend, they anointed the tabernacle and all the furnishings thereof. So when you came out of sin into righteousness, from darkness into light, the first thing God did was make sure there's an anointing on your life that says you're separate, you're different, and you're distinct. The anointing. And he says in verse 27 that this anointing is receivable because you received him. And he says he abides with you. Aren't you glad the Holy Spirit doesn't leave you? You become a Christian, he comes into you to dwell. He comes inside of you to live. The ministry of the Holy Spirit is to make Jesus real to the believer every single day. Show you various aspects of Christ that you've never seen before so that you will fall in love with him over and over and over and over again. And the more you fall in love with him, you never want to leave him. Never want to leave him. And that is what, what God wants. If we're going to be seduced by anyone or by anything, let us be seduced by the work of the Holy Spirit in causing us to see Jesus as a beautiful Savior and to follow him no matter what. Because if I, if I fall in love with him every day, then I'm not going to ever want to leave him. So you can see from, from my life then, I have... I've, I've had to deal with at least two seductions that I've enjoyed. The first with my lovely bride here. The other with the king of kings because I love him just as much as I did the day I said I received him as my Savior. So verse 27 then, 
This is why it says you don't need anybody to teach you. Now, he's not saying you don't need Bible studies. He's not saying you don't need church services. You don't need a pastor. He's not saying that at all. He's talking about the preceding verses where people have come to seduce you. People come into the church with false doctrine, and they're not trying to lead you into a closer relationship with the king. You have an anointing inside of you that tells you repeatedly, Jesus did come in the flesh. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the Christ. That's why you don't need any man to try to teach you. If uh, if someone from the kingdom hall visits your house and wants to talk to you about how the world's going to blow up with a nuclear bomb, and you should become a follower of the witnesses of Jehovah. You need no man teach you that. Stay with the Holy Spirit. Somebody shows up at your door with black pants on and a white shirt, but a little bit different than me. And, and they're and they're riding they're riding bicycles and they're two by two. And they say they want to talk to you about God and about the Bible, and they pull out an old King James Bible and start talking to you. And 20 minutes into the discussion, they introduce someone by the name of Joseph Smith. You know, you're dealing with Mormons. You don't need to be taught that. It's not even worth knowing, you know. So it's best to come back to the book, stay with the truth, because the Scripture says in verse 27, that same anointing teaches you all things and is truth. So God the Holy Ghost is not trying to confuse Christians. The Spirit of God is not trying to bring confusion but clarity. And if he teaches us, he expects us to be teachable. Now, what does it mean to be teachable? It means that my heart and my mind is never so hardened to the truth that I can't be conformed by what God is saying to me. If you come in contact with Scripture or principles of Scripture, and then you hear those principles, and then you say things like this, well, I have a right to be the way that I am, and I'm not going to change, then you're not teachable. And if you're not teachable, you're not willing to accept the truth. If you don't accept the truth, then you can't change. God can only bring growth to us with conviction. So God puts his finger on something in Brother Wood's heart, and when he does that, it's because there's something that's there. And the moment that he gets that up under the blood and changes, there can be growth now in grace and in knowledge, and God moves on to the next aspect of his life. Same thing with me. You can never grow without conviction. If you're in here this evening and you cannot think of one thing that the Holy Ghost of God needs to convict you of or is convicting you of, then you're an innocent, righteous person. We, we could have crucified you on Calvary. But, but if you have been redeemed and you were born in sin, shaped in iniquity, and have fallen short of the glory of God, and you've got a sin nature in you, according to Romans chapter 6 and Romans chapter 7, there will always be something in you and in me that is in need of the blood. Now, we may not instantly know that, but the Spirit of God will turn the searchlight on, and he'll start pointing it out to us. And you may pass through a season where you feel like, well, yeah, everything's good right now. I, I don't feel like I'm in trouble with anybody. There's no strife. There's no discord. Praise God. However, Christian growth in our character requires that the Spirit of God say, okay, let's work on that attitude right now. Yeah. 
And once you deal with that, then he'll come along and he'll say, okay, let's work on this attitude right now. And that kind of teaching is a private instruction. I guess we could call it its own form of homeschooling because you can't get away from the Holy Spirit. If you're a Christian, you can't get away from his working in your life. This is something totally separate from the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I'm just talking about you as a Christian in the body of Christ. The Spirit of God is at work in your life daily. And he's like an agitator in a washing machine, you know. And he's trying to separate that dirt from the garment. And and in the end, you're going to go through all of these different cycles because the Lord's trying to produce a believer who will be without spot, without blemish, without wrinkle. Yeah, that's Ephesians. So look at verse 27 again. He teaches you the truth and is no lie. Is there a difference between a little white lie and a black lie? I guess a lie is a lie, huh? Okay. Has anyone in here ever been lied to? I guess all of us have probably had somebody tell us something that wasn't true. Has anyone in here ever told something that wasn't true? Yeah. Well, we know if, if we did that, we can't blame the Holy Ghost on that. No. It says here that he teaches you all things and is truth and is no lie. What are some of the things that the Holy Spirit teaches? According to first excuse me, according to the Gospel of John chapter fourteen, he is the one who comforts us. And he's also the one who brings to our remembrance the things that Jesus has said. So part of his teaching is to remind us of what we've read in the book. If you haven't taken the time to read the book, how can he bring it back to remembrance? So I think every Christian should have a a time of devotion. Now, who likes early morning devotions? Anybody here like early morning? I'm more of an early, early morning person. Anybody here late night person? Like to be up late? Yeah, okay. Anybody here kind of like afternoons? They try to sneak away in the afternoons or something like that. Well, everybody should have some time. See, yeah, everybody. See, everybody's got got a, got a, a period of time where they like to spend with the King. But the more time we spend with Him, the better the opportunity of God being able to remind remind us of what we've read. So by reading the Scripture and then meditating on the Scriptures, we're writing the Scriptures on our heart. And if you have some favorite scriptures, then, of course, you know that those favorite scriptures of yours are the things that the Spirit of God oftentimes brings to remembrance. And when God, the Spirit of God brings things to you, he doesn't necessarily have to bring them to you in King James English. He can just bring the concept to you, bring the principle to you, and minister to you that way. Well, look at verse 27 again. It says, and even as it hath taught you, you shall abide in him. Now, how do I abide in him? How do I abide in the Spirit of God? We can go now to the Gospel of John, and I want us to turn. And let's look at chapter chapter 15. 
The Gospel of John, chapter 15, verse 1. I am the true vine, and my Father is the husbandman. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away, and every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth it, that it may bring forth more fruit. These two verses are not easy to understand if you don't know a lot about gardening. They're really not. They're not easy to understand at all. In fact, when when it talks about a, a true vine, a, a person who has never planted something or ever had to try to raise a begonia or something like that, they're going to wonder what exactly is this talking about because they may not even know what a vine is, let alone a grapevine or something like that. But Jesus uses the vine as a figure of who he is and speaks of his heavenly Father as a gardener. Okay, so for all of you that have had gardens before, once you plant a garden, will the garden pretty much take care of itself, or do you have to go out there occasionally? You have to go out there and weed it. Okay, so can you go out? Do you have to go out there daily, or do you need to go out there once a week, or do you need to go out there monthly? Pretty much daily. Okay. Because it seems like whether you get rain or you don't get rain, weeds grow. So some things don't need a whole lot of moisture, but, but weeds will grow no matter what. Okay, well, if, if he says in verse 2 that, that there are branches that don't bear fruit that they need to be taken away, then he's saying that something has to be purged. So if you've got a rose bush or some other kind of bush, you know, from time to time you'll hear people say, well, you know, you probably need to take that and cut that back. And then, of course, by the time they're done cutting everything back, it almost looks like there's no way anything's going to come back for the next season. And then you look up and the whole thing is flourishing. So I wonder if in abiding in Christ, if from time to time he recognizes that in our lives that there are seasons where there are weeds that are growing or or there are branches or ministries or things that we're involved with that are not producing fruit. And he needs to come along and start cutting because he recognizes this really is not helpful to you and it's not helpful to me. Now, gardens, of course, they bring forth vegetation and produce, but the gardens are not going to eat their own vegetation and produce. They're producing it for you. They're producing it for me. So the fruit that comes out of your life is going to be fruit that very likely is going to be received by your neighbor, your family member, people that are in church with you. If you're a very patient person, you are somebody we need in church all the time. Because for the rest of us who are not the most patient people, we really need to hang out with you, and we need to pluck fruit from your life because that patience is necessary. If you're a person, like in the fruit of the Spirit, you've got great faith, and you really are a good believer, and what comes out of your mouth is constantly making God bigger than any problem that anybody is facing. We need you in the house of God. We need you in your own home because there are other people constantly going to be pulling on that fruit from your life. We don't, we don't need somebody who's manifesting, you know, a bad attitude. That kind of stuff needs to be purged. 
So the, the husbandman, which is the gardener, he says concerning Israel back in Isaiah, he said, I planted you as a good vine. And he said, you were the best of all the vines that I planted. I think this is Isaiah 5. But he said, what in the world happened that caused you to degenerate and turn into this ugly vine? Well, it's not that he avoided them. It's not that he neglected them. By choice, they made the decision that they didn't want to look after their own garden, and because of that, they, they kind of went in a, in a bad direction. Well, back over here in John chapter 15 again, you can see it says he takes it away. Now, there are some translations now that use the phrase in verse 2 where it says he taketh it away. There's some translation now that try to say he'll lift it up as if it was being hidden from light and, and darkness was keeping it from becoming fruitful. But the Greek, the Greek talks about removal. The Greek word means to, for something to be separated. Well, the purging process, you know, if you purge something, you're scrubbing something, you're cleaning something. That, that's what you're doing. Some of the old books from the 20s, 30s, and 40s, sometimes they had uh, pages of what they had called expurgated text. That means if there was any racy kind of language or foul language, they removed those words or put those words in another language. So if you were reading a book and it came out where it would have been a cuss word, they'd write a French word or they, or they put it in Latin or something like that. So when we, we talk about something that has to do with purging, we're talking about removal. There's something that has to be taken away. So back here in verse number 2 then again, it says he purges it that it may bring forth more fruit. God looks in our lives and realizes in order to get greater fruit out of us, sometimes there are things that need to be taken from us. Now, who would have ever thought that subtraction could lead to multiplication? But that's exactly what God is saying. And, and you parents, when you have observed with your own kids that they were not conducting themselves according to the standards that you had set for them, you may have very well made the decision to take away from them certain toys, certain benefits, certain privileges, with the expectation that by removing certain privileges, it would multiply goodness in their behavior. Yeah, that, that's, that's what oftentimes happens. So verse 3, Jesus said, Now you are clean through the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine. No more can ye except you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He that abides in me and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me you can do nothing. So we're learning, just like in 1 John chapter 2, the Spirit of God abides in us, but we're also told to abide in him. But when we say abide in the Spirit of God, that doesn't always make sense because the Spirit of God is a spirit. You can't see him. You can't touch him. You can't feel him. How then can I abide in him? By abiding in Christ. How can I abide in Christ? By obeying the Word. By obeying the Word. Have a, have a personal encounter with the Lord daily through his Word. Spend some time seeking God's face through his word and allow that word to transform your heart 
and to renew your mind. And by doing so, you're abiding in him. If I ask you your address, you can tell me. And if I ask you how many nights a month do you spend at that address, you're probably going to tell me every night. And your neighbors, of course, are going to know that you live there because your car is there, lights are on. In fact, you that have lived in this this county for a long time, you could probably drive me up and down different streets in these towns, and you can say to me that, that, there, was the, that there was the old Blankowski house or something because you knew who lived there. And you knew that because of the habit of them being there. Well, if, if the Spirit of God takes up residence in us and he's there all the time, he's kind of expecting us to do the same thing with him, to abide in him, to live with him, to live for him, to live by him. He doesn't want us to just be a good neighbor. He wants us to dwell in him. And the way we do that is being a branch that's connected to the trunk of the tree. You disconnect the branch, life is cut off. I've done that several times where I've cut down a branch or cut something off a bush, and then, of course, you throw it down on the concrete there in the backyard or in your driveway or toss it out in the street, and you you come back five minutes later and it still looks the same. You come back the next day, you can see that it's died. You come back a week later, the thing is entirely dead because it's been severed from the life that gives it its ability to flourish and produce its color. Well, when a person is walking with God and they're abiding in the vine, you're going to see that life, you're going to see that vitality inside of them. But once they start cutting themselves off from the book, they cut themselves off from fellowship, they cut themselves off from the presence of God, you'll watch people begin to wither. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's not a beautiful sight to see people begin to wither. Because oftentimes when, when folks are dying on the vine, they don't really know they're dying. Now all the insects do, and all the birds do, but the, but the, but the branch couldn't, can't really tell it. Of course, it doesn't have any personality. And so in that local church, when people start dying on the vine slowly, becoming bitter, becoming angry, becoming unforgiving, and all of that kind of thing, they oftentimes can't sense what is taking place. But other people are just kind of looking, and they're like, oh, my goodness, can they see what I see? The fruits of the Spirit, like Joel chapter 1, are drying up, they're languishing on the vine. That's the language of Joel Chapter 1, languishing on the vine. And I would like to think, if I ever got like that, you'd come and have a conversation with me. Yeah, you'd come and have a conversation with me. If 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 all of a sudden we, we went through month after month after month, all I did was get up here and just call you names and name all your sin and talk about how bad you were, eventually somebody needed to sit me down and say, Pastor, are you okay? Is everything all right? You you just you seem to be you seem to be a little angry about something. Well, what makes you think I'm angry? Well, okay, uh, hard to tell, but it seems like there's a problem. Okay, so verse verse number five. Again, it says, "I'm the vine; you're the branches. Without me, you can do nothing." I can testify and tell you that is true. Can't do anything without God. And we can try, 
It just doesn't work out. You can't win an argument without God. You can't reconcile in a relationship without God. It's hard to keep peace in a church without God. And, And you can't walk in love as God expects us to walk in love without God. It's impossible. The people every day, they try to do it, and some folks will say, well, look, uh, everybody can be nice. They have the ability to be nice. Well, being nice isn't the same as having the characteristics of God. And and being a a wonderful person, as as we might think we're wonderful, isn't the same as being a godly Christian who's exhibiting the characteristics of God. The Scripture says God is love. We don't want to fall into the trap of believing that love is God. There are different types of love, and around the world there are a whole lot of people who say they're in love or they love people, but, but that love doesn't necessarily make it godly. But when the Scripture says God is love, we're talking about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We're talking about the God that redeemed us and saved us. We're not talking about a God from another religion. And, and we have to be very specific when, when we describe that because if, if we want to bring forth much fruit, we need to be connected to the right trunk, right vine, wrong vine, will not bring forth any of this right here. But if, if we turn from him, then we're cast forth as a, a branch. So the, the purpose of the anointing then is to ensure that we have a teacher and a guide. And of course, the purpose of the anointing is to make sure that we remain connected with the king. The Spirit of God is not going to do anything to remove us from the Lord. He he wants us to experience the presence of God, the presence of God. And sometimes in worship, when we begin to sing and, and love on Him, I'm telling you the anointing of God becomes even more real just through worship. Yeah, There's a place in worship where the anointing of God can do amazing things without anybody ever having to lay hands on anybody, without anybody saying anything to anybody, just the presence of God. And you know as well as I do, in his presence, God can do more in 30 seconds than somebody can with a psychiatrist if they spend six months with him. Purpose of the anointing. Scripture says Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. And the devil certainly wants to do what he can to separate the vine and the branches. He's crafty. He's skillful. He's looking at that all the time. He tries to point out to you what's wrong with your neighbor, what's wrong with the person who lives next door to you, what's wrong with the person in the pulpit. All of that is designed to keep you angry about something because when you're mad with people, you don't want to be around them. Isn't that true? If you're disappointed with someone or you're angry with somebody, do you really want to be around them? Probably not. And Satan works like that. If he can cause us to be separated, then that means the anointing of God can't function and flow and operate in us the way that he wants to. I'm sure there could be many more tongues and interpretations, many more prophecies in a church, Many more words of knowledge and words of wisdom if the anointing wasn't blocked by so much flesh. Okay? 
Not so much flesh. It says in Galatians, who is it that ministers the Spirit to you? Did he do it by the works of the law, the flesh, or by the hearing of faith? Well, we obviously know he does that by the hearing of faith. But if faith works by love, then my love isn't working, then my faith isn't working. So the anointing certainly isn't going to be able to function the way that it needs to. When we lay hands on people to pray, our expectation should be for God to move powerfully because we're anointed people. But if, if our love walk isn't the way that it needs to be, you could have faith muscles that are super big, but they're still not going to function for you. Mm-hmm. And the anointing of God destroys yokes, and the anointing of God is what teaches us. So when we come on a Wednesday or we come on Sunday and and sitting there listening to whoever is teaching, our mentality and attitude should be, Father, what is it that you're going to say that's going to benefit me today? I shouldn't begin with the attitude, I don't like him. I don't like her teaching. I'm not interested. Is, is, is pastor just going to tell the same story over and over again? That should never be our attitude. Our attitude should be, Lord, what can I glean from what is being taught right now that can change my life and make me a better Christian? If I don't have the right attitude, I won't be in the right position to receive. And if I don't get in the position to receive, I won't expect to receive. And without an expectation... Then the whole thing was in vain. I came to church, didn't get anything, go home, go home, and then, and, and then that's the end of it. But to turn it all over to him and let the anointing of God operate in my life, sometimes if we're watching a, a TV program and somebody's on there preaching and I'm sitting there reading, and it may not be somebody I'm really, really into, but Tiffany enjoys, or vice versa, my, my attitude still has to be, Is there truth here that I can apply to my life to make me a better Christian or a better minister? And and when I'm at different conferences and they have a whole plethora of, of speakers, range of speakers, and all of them different types, different styles, different beliefs sometimes, when I have to sit there and go preacher after preacher all day long and listen, I've got to position myself to receive what I can receive. I mean, even a horse has enough sense to eat the straw and don't eat the sticks. But just because the sticks are there, the horse isn't going to neglect or abandon the haystack. But there are a whole lot of people, they would never go sit under some other preacher unless he's just from their denomination or from their movement or teaches exactly the way they want it to be. It's not that way in the kingdom of God. We are all different, and you should be willing to eat from different haystacks and just spit out the sticks. That's maturity. And when we don't have that, then we become picky, we become fussy, and then we don't receive from from someone what God wants us to have. Yeah. And you should tell your friends that also. Very important to allow God to do what he wants to do in our hearts and our lives. Some of you don't even know it. Some of the best messages you've ever heard me preach, I've got from Tiffany. Riding down the highway, we're having a long discussion about this or about that. I'll say, honey, pull out 
pull out the pen and the uh, little notepad there. I think I've got an outline. And then she'll just start scribbling what I'm telling her. And then, of course, then she'll just start adding stuff and telling me if she's adding this. And what, what about this? Or after a message that I preached, and, and, and then she said, well, you know, this, this, this is what I was thinking of when you were talking about that. And I'm like, well, okay, that's a good note there. That'll be good for the next time we share this somewhere. Or next time we deal with that scripture. You have to be willing to receive from people. That's what growth is. And, and if you won't listen to sometimes what your kids say or your spouse says or what the pastor says or an associate minister says or someone else says, it's going to be very hard for you ever to grow. Yeah. But the purpose of the anointing, or one of the purposes of the anointing, is to teach. And he operates in all of us. We should never believe we know it all. Amen? Amen. Praise God. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the mighty Holy Spirit of God and the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Teach us, lead us, guide us every single day. Oh, Lord, we love you.